Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you all here. Welcome for everyone who is online right now. Very excited about this sermon because last week's sermon was all about the doom and gloom of sin and temptation. And today we're going to talk about something pretty awesome. With that being said, though, I want us to continue to keep praying for this country, praying for our government, praying that God would bring unity and peace, that we would have an understanding that he's always in control. As much as we want to try and be in control, God is always in control. He knows when we're going to die. He knows when we're going to be born. He knows every number of hairs on our head. Unfortunately for some of us older men, <laughs> Fortunately for some of us older guys, we don't have as many hairs on our head, but God knew that was going to happen too. So let me pray for us, and then we're going to get started, and we're going to get into God's Word together. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you now, Lord, and we just pray for wisdom. We ask for strength and understanding in the midst of this time, this trial that we're all going through, that this whole country is going through, that we would look to you for truth, because the truth will set us free. You are truth, Jesus. You are the way. You are life. I pray, God, specifically for those who don't know you, that they would come to know you in a loving, saving way, because whether we like it or not, every single one of us are going to die. We don't know how, we don't know when, but we all are going to die. And if we don't know you, Lord, I just, I cry for that. I cry for that because all of eternity, without you, is what Jesus called in Matthew 18, hell. But Lord, being with you, being in your presence every day of our lives after this life is heaven. It's wonderful. And so I pray for this country, I pray for the people, that they would come to know Jesus Christ. Not some pastor, not some church, not some evangelical, not some whatever you want to call it, Lord. I pray they come to know you that they would read your word, that as you revealed yourself to us in the Bible, the books of the Bible, the 39 different authors, the 66 different books, Lord, I pray that people would learn to come to know you. That's my job as a pastor, is to preach and teach about you and push people to you because, Lord, I'm a human being and I'm going to fail them. I apologize now, Lord, ask for forgiveness of my sins when I do fail people, when I don't live up to the expectations that you have set for us. Lord, I pray ultimately that we would come to know you, follow you, be actual disciples of you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So today we're looking at James. 
James, again, is the New Testament Proverbs. That's what James is. So last week we talked about temptation and sin. And what does temptation and sin look like? Life is bleak. In the grand scheme of things, when you think about these two things together, sin and temptation, life is bleak. We talked about the word in Greek and how it means to entice to improper behavior and also to test. Now, Satan's the one who tempts us to improper behavior, and it's God who's the one that tests us. I talked about the ways not to fall into temptation with using the halt method when you're hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. Halt. Stop what you're doing. When you're hungry, angry, lonely, or tired, stop what you're doing and start praying and asking God for help. Then you can find an accountability partner, someone you can trust, someone you can trust and share your lives with and you are comfortable with not lying to. See, the issue with accountability partners is sometimes you get people that enable you to continue to keep doing what you're doing and they don't really hold you accountable. One of the first questions I ask my accountability partners is when they confess something to me is I'll say, now that you're done, are you lying about anything? That's a tough question. But you can do that with the HALT method. Doing these things, halting, praying, and calling our accountability partners will help us to not fall into temptation. Hopefully. See, God tests, Satan tempts. Jesus so, goes so far as to tell us in our prayers that we need to ask God to help us not fall into the testing of our faiths. In the Lord's Prayer, in the Sermon on the Mount, many people talk about this. Well, why would Jesus say, lead us not into temptation? Well, because the word in Greek means the same thing. But you have to understand the connotation. You have to understand the context of what Jesus was saying with that word. He's not saying God's tempting us. He's saying that aspect of the word in Greek means to not test us in our weakness. So lead us not into the testing of our faith because we know we're weak. Yet it's translated, lead us not into temptation. So again, God tests us. And we talked about that testing, those trying times. We talked about what happens when we let our desires come to fruition. Each person I said last week, each person, when enticed and lured by our own desires, outside of God's will, turns it into sin. We turn it into sin. Augustine put it this way, sin comes when we take a perfectly natural desire or longing or ambition and try to desperately fulfill it without God. Not only is it sin, it perverses the distortion of the image of God in us. And all these good things, in all security, are rightly found only and completely in Him. What happens when we don't do that? Once that happens, our sin gives birth to death. Such a dichotomy there. Life and death. Our sin gives birth to death. Our lives, outside of God's will, gives birth to death. What's, what is it going to save us from, or who is it going to save us from this wretched life? Who is it? Who's going to save us from this wretched life? As Paul said, thanks be to God, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we all sin. We all fall short of the glory of God. And those wages of sin is death, spiritual death. We are completely, eternally separated from God. But thanks be to God that he sent his son to die for us, to be raised again after the third day, to prove it over and over again to over 500 people and then ascend into heaven to prepare a place for us. 
That's what Jesus did. We who sin are spiritually dead. We are eternally separated from God the Father forever. I mean, that's what eternity means, forever. So we need to turn our lives to Jesus Christ. Not mine, not some church, not some cool pastor. Turn your lives to Christ. I encourage you, if you're listening online right now and you go to a church that's all about that pastor or the cool services that they give you, please consider going somewhere else. Because the only thing you're going to find here is Jesus Christ and Christ alone preached through faith alone, through the scriptures alone, through the worship of the Holy Spirit who lives inside believers alone. Now we're going to be talking about James chapter 1. We're still in James chapter 1. And we're going to look at the purpose of God today. So you're going to turn with me, hopefully, in chapter 1, starting in verse 16, and see the hope that we have outside of the glim and, the, and, and the, the bleak life that we live. I want you guys to understand the hope that we have as Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ. Because last week was grim, but this week, hopefully, you're going to find hope, not in yourselves, but in God. So look at it with me. James chapter 1, verses 16 through 18 says this. Do not be deceived, my brothers. My beloved brothers, do not be deceived. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Let me break this down for us a little bit here. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Ken Hughes wrote this about James in his commentary. He says this, It's impossible to walk with God if we question his goodness. But that's the very thing many Christians do today. That's what Christians, and James was writing to them, did with God because of their persecution from Jews and from the Greeks and from the Romans and the whole known world at the time. They questioned God's goodness. I've heard it said many times over the short period of time I've been here on earth that a good God would never allow bad things to happen to them or others or their loved ones. A good God wouldn't allow that to happen. And since bad things happen, God could not be good because he should step in and stop it. I often laugh inside and I weep outside for those who have no understanding of that. I could give you example after example of God doing things in the lives of people because he allows for free will. For example, Moloch, the Canaanite God, they would actually, it's a bronze bull and they would set it on fire and it would be scorching and they would rip children from their mother's hands. And the drummers would have to drum louder and louder so they wouldn't hear the screams of their babies as they sacrificed them on Moloch. They did that for 400 years. How horrible is that? Then God steps in, says to the nation of Israel, wipe them all out. And I hear people all the time, God's a tyrant. He wiped out whole nations. You can't have it both ways. 
God steps in and you get mad at him for stepping in. God doesn't step in and you get mad at him for stepping in or not stepping in. I wonder if some feel that way today. The doubt of God and his goodness has been since the beginning of time. Satan did that very thing with Adam and Eve in the garden. Satan has not stopped calling into question God's goodness. So James is saying here, don't be deceived, my beloved brothers. Don't do it. God is good. God is good. We're going to talk about verse 17 in a minute. But the calling into question of God's goodness, that's the question of why do bad things happen to people who don't deserve bad things to happen to them. We can see that bad things happen. We know that some people are bad and they deserve a day of reckoning, right? And sometimes that doesn't happen in our world, right? Justice doesn't seem to happen sometimes. Sometimes justice in our minds doesn't happen as it should. We in our minds are okay with bad things happening to bad people, right? <clears throat> what about bad things happening to good people? And why would a good God allow those things to happen to good people? I know this is going to sound harsh. It's going to sound harsh. And I'm going to do my best to not make it sound harsh. I'm going to say this as lovingly as I possibly can, as gently as I possibly can. There are no good people according to God. None of us are good. Romans 3 says that God is searching. This is all about Psalm 14. In fact, if you want, you can look up my master's thesis. It was all about good and bad and the, the fool in his heart says there is no God. And in that, Paul quotes that in very Scripture, he quotes it in Romans chapter 3. He says, God's looking for anyone who's good. And he finds no, not one. Not one good person. In fact, in Isaiah 64, our best efforts are like menstrual rags. I know it sounds harsh, but it's the truth. We all sin. We all miss the mark or target of being perfect. And like I said last week, there are consequences for our sins or missing the mark. The wages of sin is death, spiritual death. Sometimes it's physical death. I can give you examples from Scripture all day long, but it's going to take all day. But here's one example of sinning that caused physical death. Check out the story of Ananias and his wife in Acts chapter 5. They lied to God, and it cost them their lives. They dropped dead right on the spot after Peter asked them if they lied and why Satan filled their hearts with lies. These were people in the church. These aren't some outsiders. These are people in the early church and they, and they lied and it cost them their lives. So there's examples of people doing bad things and it cost them their lives. But was it really that bad? I mean, they withheld some money from God. They withheld land. They didn't sell all of it. They only sold part of it. How was that bad? Because they knew that God was asking them for something and they withheld it and it cost their lives. 
God does that with all of us. He asks us to give up something. You know what he asks us? Give up everything, all of ourselves. Do we do that perfectly? No, none of us do it perfectly. But that's what he wants from us, to give ourselves, give up everything we have to follow him. Jesus talked about the rich man, the young man. I've done all these things, Lord. What else do you want me to do? Sever anything you got and follow me. What did he do? He bowed his head and walked away because he had so much wealth and he didn't want to do it. None of us are good. There's other examples of good people who die for doing something wrong, but I'm not going to get into all that today. The point I'm trying to make is that in God's eyes, there are no, not one, no good people. And the only way to be considered good is to accept God's son's death as payment for the penalty of our sins. Because then we're washed with the blood of Christ. That's what makes us clean. Being washed with the blood of Christ makes us clean. How interesting that statement is. God does not owe you and I anything. That's the other misconception here. God owes us something. We don't do any bad things. I haven't murdered anybody. I've heard that argument before. I've never done anything wrong. Have you lied? No? Welcome to the club. You just lied there. I, it just amazes me. I've never really done anything bad. Have you driven a car in the state of Michigan? Yes, then you've done something wrong. Trust me. There might be a silver lining in all this. It might, it might help you to get past the good-bad issue with people, with God. It's called the ripple effect or the butterfly effect. Hopefully this makes sense. Dr. Frank Turk talks about it all the time when people ask him this question. Because this helped me. This helped me get past the good-bad issues and why does it happen. See, one event that happens that might be bad to you might be good for someone else down the road. We just don't know. So I've told you this story before of the doctor I know and how she had just gotten out of her schooling and doing her residency and she'd never had to actually work on a child before. Well, these parents got into a bad car accident and the kid had all these internal bleeding issues and issues that were caused through the accident. And as she's working on this child to try and save his life, he passes away. And it's a horrible scenario for the parents. It is an absolute bad. It was an accident and they lost their child. That's horrible. The doctor had just had the opportunity to try and work on that. A few years later, gets the exact same kind of injuries and through experience, she's able to save the next son. Something bad happened. But with the experience that she learned and how to work on that first, even though she lost him, she was able to save the next one because the experience she was given. So it was good for those family, for that family, that she was able to save, but it was bad for the others. So the ripple effect, when you drop a pebble in the water, those ripples go all the way out to the end. You just don't see it most of the time. So be patient with God. That's what I have to learn. I have to learn to be slow to speak, slow to anger, and quick to listen. 
That's hard to do. It's hard to do. But it's good. She learned from the first bad experience and turned it into a good experience. That's the butterfly effect. We can't see the good in the moment, but later, through our experiences, we see that good comes from the bad. And that's because God is good. It might not even happen during our lifetime. We might not understand it during our lifetime. But God does work, and he does all good in all things. Not just what we think is good, but all things. Later, Paul says this, if, if God is for us, who can be against us? So have the right perspective. Life can be very different for you if you change your perspective with God. Learn to have the mind of Christ. He's living inside of you. To live is Christ. To die is gain. Learn what that means. Learn what it means to do. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Don't just slap it on a coffee mug and drink it in the morning. Understand what Paul's trying to say there. In the midst of a trial, he's in prison. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Because he knows what it's like to have a lot of food. He knows what it's like to not have a lot of food. He knows what it's like to have no money. Yet he knows what it's like to have a lot of money. He can do all things through Christ who strengthens him. It's not, being, it's not about being able to do anything you set your mind to. It doesn't work that way in God's economy. It's about having the right perspective in all situations. A godly Christ mindset. Now don't be deceived, brothers. But what? What should we do when we don't listen to Satan and his lies that God's not good? James tells us here in verse 17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. God is the only source of good. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. This God that we serve is unchanging and has no variations. Make no mistake about it. Anything that's God or in God's will is good for you. Following God's ways is good for you. Seeing God for who he really is is good for you. Being obedient to God for everything in life is good. In fact, Psalm 73, a psalm of Asaph, talks about the wicked and how they seem to prosper in this life. He comes to the conclusion that God will come through. He says this, Psalm 73, verse 23, Nevertheless, after all these things, the wicked are able to do whatever they want. They seem to prosper and never get sick, never die, never have any issues. Nevertheless, he says, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. Afterward, you will receive me to glory. With whom have I have in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is my strength of my heart and my portion forever. How many in the church live this way? For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. Verse 28. But for me, it is good 
to be near God. I made the Lord my God my refuge, that I may tell of your works. Even though God allows for free will and bad things to happen, and many take that free will to do evil, for me, it is good to be near God. He is my refuge and my strength. I pray that to be true for all of us in the church. Roger Ellsworth puts it this way. God does not have days when he has more goodness than other days. His goodness is always undiminished and unchanged. Ken Hughes says this. God does not change like shifting shadows. God's goodness is always at high noon. The devil will tell you otherwise. He will tell you that God has less favor towards you today. That because you've sinned, God hates you. God has less favor towards you today than he had for you yesterday, and it's all your fault. That's what Satan tells us. But listen to James. God is good. He's always been there. He is always good. He will always be there. He will always be good. He can't be anything other than good. And this means that God is being good to us even when our circumstances be might be shrieking that he's not good. He's always good even in the circumstances when we think he might not be good. That, oh my goodness, we are having such an issue right now. This virus is destroying so many lives and damaging so many lives and people are dying and it's horrible. God, you must not be there. I never understood the preachers that say, oh, God's punishing us with these things. Where do you get that from? God is always good. God is always good. So even though we might be looking at a time in life where we might, it might sound like God is shrieking that there is no good and that he's not good, what do we do? What does that mean for us today? Well, look at verse 18. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. We are his first fruits. What does it mean to be first fruits? What does it mean to be first fruits? God is good all the time, and all the time, God is good. The things you and I need to be reminded of daily is that God has granted to us spiritual life forever when we believe and receive Jesus Christ as our saviors. We are the first fruits of the kingdom of God. Listen to me, church. We are the first fruits to the kingdom of God. All that doom and gloom of temptation and sin is bad, but God is good and willing and able to free us of those things, those very things, to bring us into a relationship with him. Salvation is the grace of God. The conduit is the word of God, and the outcome is the first fruits of God. That word in Greek is aparte, aparte. It means the choicest offerings for animals. And the giving is required in the Old Testament. It was the choicest of animals. It was the sacrifice of Abel. 
It was the holy or divine or, and consecrated before the rest. <coughs> the rest of the choices. We are, in God's eyes, those who believe and receive Jesus Christ as their saviors, the first fruits of God. That's what we're seeing today. Because he is good. Not because I am good, because he is good. Not because we do right, because he is faithful. Even when I am faithless, 2 Timothy 3.13, he remains faithful. For he cannot deny himself, because he's ultimately good. He's holy. He's consecrated. And he's saying to us, we are first fruits. His first fruits. That's what James is trying to tell the church. I'm trying to tell you guys today online and in the church that we're his first fruits. So act like it. Act like it's true in our lives. Be humble in your riches. Be exalted in your poverty. Know your position. Change your perspective. Know your standing in God's society and live like that. Again, if you're poor, know where you stand in God's eyes. Again, James says we're exalted. If you're rich, then be humble. Be humble enough to look at Christ and see the truth. The man who is a perfect, spotless sacrifice. Who endured the cross. He was humble enough to endure the cross. So that you and I can be with God forever. Think about that for a moment. Riches fade. Sicknesses go away. Kingdoms fall. God never changes. He never deviates from who he is. That's goodness. That's the hope we have today. So what is God's purpose in this it's so that you know he is good. Everything that comes from him. Psalm 23 says this, that God's goodness and mercy follow me all my days because David knew who was following him, being with the Lord. It's like two little puppies following him. Oh, goodness and mercy. They're just biting at his heels. Every good gift and every perfect gift comes from God. When life gets hard, remember what Paul says about bad people in Romans 12, verse 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it's written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you'll be burning, heaping coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with Good. Two wrongs don't make a right. Yet in the society we live today, evil is celebrated as good and good is celebrated as evil. We don't look. We, we look to have vengeance towards people, do we not? If someone wrongs us, we want to wrong them right back. There is no other world religion, worldview, that ever has taught like what Christ has taught. You've heard it said, hate your enemies. I tell you, love your enemies. 
No one else. I challenge you. No one else in the world teaches that way outside of what Jesus Christ taught. Do not overcome evil with evil, but overcome evil with good. I got a story for you. It's called The Good News and the Bad News. It's kind of a funny story, hopefully. Hopefully you get this story. But a farmer walks into a bank. He says to the banker, I got good news and I got bad news for you. The banker says, okay, what's the bad news first? Oh, okay. Well, the farmer says, I can't make my mortgage payments. And that crop that I, that crop loan I've been taking from you for the last 10 years, uh, I can't pay that back either. Not only that, I won't be able to pay you back for the, the couple hundred thousand dollars I owe you for the farm equipment and the tractor I borrowed. So I'm here to turn over my farm. I'm here to turn over my equipment. And you can do whatever you want, salvage it however you want. And then there was this silence for a moment. And the banker looks at him and says, wait a minute, what was the good news? The farmer looks at him and says, well, I'm going to keep banking here. Don't you worry about that. And oh, by the way, I know this out-of-work farmer that if you want to hire him, he knows how to use all this equipment on this farmland. If you'd like to, I, I can work for you. <laughs> so the, the reality is here is that God is good. Even in times of troubles, you might hear some bad news, you might hear some good news, but God is always good. God is good. He's there. He gives us free will to follow his ways, or you can do what you want. That's the beauty of free will. I wouldn't recommend the latter, but some do. Some think that they know it best. I don't know if you all remember the, movie, the, the TV show Father Knows Best. I used to love watching that show. But for some reason, the mom used to know everything in that show. I don't know why they call it Father Loves Knows Best, but whatever. Now they've created a new show, I think it's on Netflix, called Mother Knows Best. Anyway, times have changed. But in times of troubles, ask God, seek God, knock, and God is there for you. He's always there, and he's listening. He's there to answer prayers. So pray for the government. Pray for the people. Pray that the will of God, which is good, is accomplished here on earth as it is in heaven. Pray that God's word would feed you every day like water. You can't go without it. Jesus is the living water. He will never cause you to thirst again. Pray that God would lead you not into the testing of your faith because you know you're weak and you can't handle it. I mean, this is the Lord's prayer. This is what Jesus was saying for us to pray when we pray. Pray to God. Pray that his will would be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Pray that we wouldn't sin or we would forgive those who sin against us. Pray that we would have God's food, this manna that we get from him. Pray that God wouldn't lead into the testing of our faith because we're weak, but he would deliver us from the evil one. I haven't said it yet, but I think... I just I don't think so, but one of my favorite verses in all the Bible is James chapter 4, verse 7 through 8. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. I want to end it there, 
with this quote from Roger Ellsworth, God is good. There is no goodness apart from him. There is no changing in his goodness. There is no getting around the fact that salvation is his greatest goodness. Don't let anyone ever tell you otherwise. God is good. In the midst of our sin and our temptations, in the midst of our desires, and those desires, when conceived, give birth to sin, and when sin is fully grown, gives birth to death. In the midst of all that, don't be deceived. God is good. Because here's the thing, and maybe you might know this verse, maybe you might not, but listen to it carefully. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him is condemned already because he has not believed in the only name of the Son of God. That's John 3, 16 through 18. That was true 2,000 years ago as it is today. When those words were penned or written, understand that God loves the world and he wants them not to perish but have eternal life with him. God desires none to die, none to perish. But too many today think they know better than God. Too many today want to be God. That's the problem we have. Especially with some of our government. They want to act like they know better. That you're not smart enough how to handle your life. So they're going to do things to take away your intelligence. That to me is sad. That to me is sad. I still haven't figured out how going every week to the grocery store is okay. But doing other activities isn't. Am I not just being exposed going to the grocery store every week? I can't go get a haircut. Doesn't make sense to me. Doesn't make sense. But that's why we need to be praying for the people. That they would start listening to God and stop listening to themselves. And start looking to the real wisdom in the world, and that's Jesus Christ. And stop listening to the wisdom of men. I'm always going to preach God because I don't care what man thinks of me. I'm not looking to get praises from man. I'm looking to do what God asks of me. And that's preach him and him alone. Jesus, the Holy Spirit, the Trinity of God, so that you know what goodness, faithfulness, and mercy and grace really is in the midst of these trials, in the midst of these times. Let me pray for us and then we'll be done. Heavenly Father, we come to you as a group of believers, a group of people who want to know you more. Lord, we want to do another major thing. We want to love you well as we're learning to love each other well. Jesus said this in John, that if we were to do these things, 
the world would know. And this is my prayer right now, Father God. Jesus said, I give you a new commandment. I give you a new commandment. That you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also love one another. By this, our love for each other as a church and as a people, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Lord, I pray that for the Christians of this world, that we would learn to love you first with everything we have. We would give up all that we are to follow your ways. That we would humble ourselves enough to do things that we never thought we would ever have to do, but yet to follow you, we would do anything. Go to the ends of the world to share the truth that you have come to save. Not to punish, but to save. And right now in this age, the church age, Lord, I pray that as a group of Christians, we would love each other and love others well as we first love you well. I pray and thank you for this time. I pray it all in your son's precious name. Amen.